Welcome to Recogs, the show where we learn how the world's best business operators build consumer brands from sourcing to selling. Brought to you by Manufactured. Manufactured is an online platform that helps brands manufacture, finance, and distribute inventory across 20 industries or 25 countries. If you're interested in learning more, for example, if you're a brand owner and you're looking for PO financing or inventory financing, or you want to explore our manufacturing options, check out manufactured.com. Thank you, Becca Milstein, for the intro to our guest today, Brian Wolf. Brian is the president of All Voices. All Voices is an employee relations platform that makes it easy to manage employee relations issues. But in this conversation, we're not going to talk about All Voices. We're going to spend our time in this episode talking about his time as a CFO of Bonobos, the men's clothing brand. Brian was the CFO of Bonobos before they were acquired by Walmart. And we're also going to be talking about his time as a CFO of Thrive Market. We explore the role and the challenges of being a CFO at a fast-paced growing brand like Bonobos, how they dealt with inventory planning, excess inventory, raising capital, building out new SKUs, D2C, and managing D2C and wholesale in Nordstrom, and as well as this, the role of the CFO in a retailer like Thrive Market. So kind of contrasting being the CFO of a high growth brand versus a CFO at a retailer. Um, this is a really, really interesting conversation. Really enjoyed this. Thanks again, Brian, for coming on. Without further ado, here's Brian. Brian, thank you, so, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me. Oh, really appreciate you coming on. Um, so I think what's like, you know, obviously you've had an incredible career and like really interesting background since you've been a CFO at a at, at a high high growth brand in Bonobos and also a CFO in a, a retailer with uh, with uh, Thrive Market. Um, can you can you talk a bit about like what the role is of a CFO at a, at a high growth at a high growth brand and as well as what like, kind of like the role is of, of a CFO um, at a retailer? Sure, um, and I'll sort of orient the question towards, I think, a strategic CFO is really um, you know, someone who, who um, you know, will do the basics, right? You, you can sort of look up online, like, what does a CFO do? And like, we'll, we'll say that person can do all those things. And then, um, and I think the most important thing is, you know, one, don't run out of cash. Um, and so what that practically means is understanding what the company's next milestone is. Um, whether it's the next financing round, whether it's a sale or acquisition, whether it's cash flow break even and profitability, self sustainability, et cetera, et cetera, and ensure that the company has a path to get there, right? And and that path can be um, pressure tested under a bunch of different scenarios, and that you make conservative assumptions to ensure that the company, even if a few bad things happen, still is able to get to that next milestone. Oftentimes, that next milestone for a growth company is a financing event. So that means understanding capital markets, understanding what metrics are necessary, how big the company needs to get, what your growth rate needs to be, what uh, underlying uh, metrics need to look like, um, and then ensuring that you've been cultivating those right uh, uh, partners as financial partners along the way um, so that you can uh, you know, be successful at that next milestone. So that's sort of one component. Uh, another component is helping to shape the numbers that you need. Uh, and that means being a good uh, allocator of capital um, and understanding the unit economics of the business at you know, the product, bundle, customer, order, category, subcategory level, store, 
Um, and then also partnering with different business leaders throughout the organization to make sure they themselves become good capital allocators. Um, and that is, that is really crucial um, because in any sort of you know, retailer or growth company, um, you know, capital is finite as, as sort of people have learned a hard lesson over the last couple of years. And uh, ensuring you get the best productivity and the best return on that capital um, is really everyone's job at the company. But I think you know, a good CFO will set the tone and will help leaders and partner with them uh, to enable their teams to, to, to execute against that. So I'm glad... I'm glad the first thing you brought up was don't run out of cash, which of course is like the job of like any, especially obviously like emerging company. I mean, any company, but emerging company, you're, you're, you're probably thinking about that um, a lot more on the day-to-day -day side than maybe like an established company. But you know, how, how then do you think about cash in the perspective of a, um, of a, you know, apparel brand, for example, or just, or is any inventory based, um, um, any, any inventory based business, like a Bonobos, for example, um, where you obviously have, you know, inventory. When does it make sense, for example, to use that cash to actually um, purchase that inventory versus debt? Um, how how are you kind of thinking about these things? It seems like cash is very tricky in terms of what to actually do with it from a brand perspective. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And um, part of the issue is accounting, <laughs> So, uh, you know, I, I sort of joke that, you know, GAP or generally accepted accounting principles, uh, it's like a Swiss army knife in that it can do everything, can cover every industry, but it does nothing really well. So if you're in a pinch and you need to screw something in, having a Swiss army knife is great because it could, you know, screw one screw in. But if you're going to screw in a hundred screws, you probably don't want to use a Swiss army knife. You probably want a tool that's actually meant for that. And, and that's sort of... Um, the problem with retail companies is that cash goes out the door when you buy something, but doesn't get expensed in your income statement until you sell it. And so if you're used to or you think about running the business off of an income statement because you're a financial analyst or you have you know basic financial training, you can be severely misled because what is happening on your income statement is divergent from what's happening from your cash flow statement or just in general from the, the cash in the business. And so understanding how those two interact and how um, cash uh, gets depleted and accumulates through uh, different periods of a company's uh, year or, or um, uh, uh, other periods and how that gets represented along your financial statements and how you're able to communicate that to the company, to the board, to the broader investing community can be a real challenge. Um, and it can also lead to a lot of mistakes. Um, it can lead to bad cash forecasting. Um, you know, for example, you have to make a buy that you didn't realize you have to make. That buy that you're going to make, accumulating inventory, will not hit your income statement. And if you're just looking at your income statement, you, you'll totally miss that. Um, it also means that you can misalign um, and be a poor, um, poorly understand uh, where value is being created or really where it's being destroyed. Um, so if a certain business unit or region or um, product line or, or category um, consumes more cash or consumes more capital or uses more capital, um, it may actually be destroying value even though it may look profitable or it may look um, you know, like it has a high margin or, or some other metrics that are important um, but are not actually you know, correlated with value creation. I'd, I'd love to look at like dive into that in terms of how you think about, you know, value creation and also, um, and also I guess how you would analyze 
a company. Obviously, as you said, you know, it's not just the income statement. You have to also look at obviously, you know, the cash flow statement and, and also balance sheet and see what maybe like the cogs level are at. And um, do you do you think at all, for example, um, on the cog side of things that, you know, a company might be, you know, um, might might appear to be a lot more valuable, for example, um, when they have um, um, with, you know, maybe sales and, you know, high margins, whatever, but maybe maybe they're actually holding like a, like a ton of inventory that actually might not, might not be able to actually convert in, convert into cash. You know, when I was at uh, Bonobos, uh, you know, retailer, and uh, this is actually a relevant time of the year, right? Holiday. And I remember Cyber Monday, and this was, you know, eight, 10 years ago when Cyber Monday was probably a little bit bigger a deal than it is now, but still Black Friday, Cyber Monday are pretty important. I think it was like three and a half percent of our sales for the entire year was on, on one day, right? And, you know, obviously, you know, do math and like one day should be, you know, 0.3% of sales. So it's 10X a, a, an average day. And I used to joke like, hey, you know, we are, look at the run rate profitability of our company <laughs> on this one day, right? Um, which was obviously sort of a, a silly uh, a silly note, but it's not that different from how you can represent financials over some short time period, right? So if you don't, properly account for, to your point, inventory that goes unsold, that is expiring, that is, is worthless, um, you know, you can look a lot more profitable than you actually are during any given period of time. Um, there's lots and lots of, <laughs> of you know, tricks, I guess, uh, or, you know, call it, um, you know, there are nicer words to call it, that uh, you can use to present your financial position to be, you know, more attractive than it is. Yeah, well, I guess then for like retail businesses, especially in like the boom when you know retail businesses, um, um, inventory based businesses were um, were at kind of the height as being you know appealing to venture capital um, from that, which that has kind of soured a bit um, over the past few years. Not to say that there aren't um, many um, investors that still invest in, in inventory based businesses, but but then could like would then like on the, on the fundraising side, like could then like the like the early part of like next year look a lot more favorable just because like the last three months, you know, where you did really well, but it happened to just be that retail is a cyclical business. I mean, Bonobos, we, we raised money in December for like six or seven years in a row. I'm not even kidding. Like it was literally like seven years in a row, like clockwork. We'd raised we'd running in December because that's when our sales were strongest. And there's just we're raising from people. Uh, you know, who didn't really understand the seasonality of the business, nor did we fully understand the seasonality business. I mean, we did later on, um, you know, as as the data set matured. And we would look and be like, oh my God, this is amazing. Look at this uptake. And we'd be able to, you know, raise money off that. And again, to, to your point, it, it was, a, it was a, a, a different time. But even, oh God, even like, you know, 10 years ago, eight, 10 years ago, you know, there were savvy investors saying like, hey, you know, DDC is not for me and sort of, had people who had invested early in the space with companies that were, and, and you know, there's, we could all list them, um, you know, highly valued and then flamed out and never, you know, created enduring value, you know, so realize the pitfalls and the challenges that come with, um, you know, with, with building, creating and running a direct to consumer brand. Let's back up for a second too. Like what, what attracted you to the opportunity to begin with at Bonobos and, and how did you end up meeting Andy Dunn? Yeah, so Bonobos is really personal to me. Um, Andy and I went to business school together. And so he's a close friend. You know, we were, uh, you know, he was at my wedding. I was in his wedding, that type of thing. Um, and uh, Andy and, and, and Brian Spaley, the other guy who founded Bonobos, are, are still two really close friends of mine. And so I was, um, 
the first customer of Bonobos. I bought the, literally bought the first pair of pants that was sold. Um, I think I was the third investor in the company. Uh, and so I was just around at its inception. I remember, you know, it was a PowerPoint before it was anything else, like, like most businesses. And I sort of witnessed its birth. Uh, and as a result, it, it was very personal. And, and you know, Andy, um, I went and worked for, you know, a hedge fund and was sort of in New York doing a finance job. And Andy was running this business. And, you know, during the day, I'd like put on a suit and go and work my finance job. And then at night I'd come home and, and you know, build a model. And, and on weekends, Andy and I would meet to talk marketing strategies or, or, or you know, like figure out, uh, you know, team dynamics and, and, and uh, you know, product line extensions. Um, and so that was really fun. And that was really fun for me. And so, you know, at some point Bonobos, you know, raised um, institutional capital and was looking to expand more, um, you know, more quickly and needed a, a financial leader um, and I interviewed for the job and got it. How did you think about uh, product um, extensions from from your side? Because of course, you know, I imagine from the CFO lenses too, it's making the company as well a bit more complex uh, from an inventory uh, perspective as well. Maybe you'll actually um, have maybe excess inventory of of um, of products that maybe aren't selling um, per se. So how did you think about like testing new products, for example, and like deciding on like which new category to kind of expand to um, maybe maybe even go deeper in pants or or, or even obviously expanding out, outside of pants? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. And one which we wrestled with a lot at the time, right? Because we were, uh, you know, for the first four years of the company, I think just a pants company, then just the bottoms. We did some shorts and swimsuits. Um, and, you know, pants typically, I think, is like 25 to 30% of, of apparel sales for a guy. And we were so overweighted in pants that we just said, hey, wow, you know, if we are able to get our fair share even of other categories, you know, we can double, triple the business. Um, and so that was sort of the opportunity uh, and why sort of it made sense. And then the question is like, hey, could we deliver a product that was consistent with our brand and uh, you know what customers wanted and what why they were hiring us you know what job we were doing for them and um, we made a <laughs> we made a lot of mistakes over the years um, but eventually uh, you know we got a lot of it right and ended up um, you know building meaningful shirts business and, and outerwear um, and uh, and collar shirts and even suits and and formal wear um, but it took a really long time and we were not. Um, one of the other challenges, and you sort of mentioned inventory as a um, way to mask the true profitability of the business. Another one is looking at your uh, fixed cost allocation, right? So, you know, you have a design team, you have a, a merchandising team, a, a merchandise planning team. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some components of fixed costs associated with those teams, right? You know, you, if you have a few more categories, you know, a few more SKUs, you're not going to add another, uh, another merchant, but at some point, you know, you will, right. And, and getting that, that cost accounting or really just understanding the actual true cost of product expansion and growth is something that is, is pretty hard. And a lot of companies don't do very well. Um, uh, and it's something that, you know, it took us a while to get right. Uh, this, the, the bigger apparel companies, the sophisticated ones that own a lot of brands, they're pros at it, right? Because for them, you know, like that is core to the business and they are focused on profitability. And so, you know, designers costs actually go into cogs sometimes. Um, and, and it's just it's a very different way of looking at the business. But when you're your growth company and you're a startup, you sort of have your fixed costs and you don't think about how they get allocated towards different growth initiatives. 
No, it's a really good point because I think that when, when a brand might think about expanding to new lines, um, you just think about, you know, the inventory costs, for example, um, or, okay, what are we going to do on like, on like the marketing spend? These are all, you know, kind of like variable based off of course of, um, um, how much you order on the inventory side versus, um, of course, um, you know, how much you spend as well on, on, on the marketing side, but also like, okay, if you are going to invest in going into, you know, a new category or different category, what is that actually from like a human resource um, element as, uh, as well um, um, on the, on the fixed cost salary uh, side too, um, which, um, which is also obviously like a big cost as well. So it's not just, it, it's not just variables. Um, and, 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 so it needs to be like- and the incentives are there, right? Cause remember one of the things uh, um, with e-commerce is the uh, fixed cost component is like the package you're sending, right? So you got to pay for shipping. You got to pay for the box and there's somewhat variable cost to pick, pack and ship. But like in general, more items in the box and or higher value dollar value in that box that goes out makes for a much more profitable order. Right. So if you're going to put a pair of pants or two pairs of pants in the box, if you put three shirts in that box as well, the contribution profit on those shirts is much higher than if someone just ordered three shirts. When we think about Bonobos, I know obviously Andy coined the term uh, DNVB and, you know, they're one of the kind of first um, emerging, um, emerging, you know, DNVB, D2C brands um, uh, that we've had, um, um, especially in, in, in the social um, era. Um, what was your first impression overall of, of, the, of the D2C channel and kind of has that changed to where we are now? Uh, yes, <laughs> I I, um, I think like a lot of the the venture capitalists or the investors early on, I'm talking like 2007, 2008. I was way more positive on the prospects of D to C, you know, becoming a, a very quick way to to grow and, and to build a big business. Um, you know, the benefits were are sort of hey, you don't have any stores. Right, so you get to take out a meaningful fixed cost. Um, one, two, you can consolidate your inventory, right? So you don't have to have inventory in stores that necessarily needs to sell, but you can have one pot of inventory. So you should be able to increase your inventory turns. Um, and then three, you're not constrained by geography, right? You can sell anywhere in the country or really anywhere in the world, um, versus just hey, you know, within a certain radius of the store the physical store print that you, um, that you've created. And that like those three elements were, were increasingly, were, were incredibly promising. And then the last point I'll say is, um, you know, you were able to have a direct conversation with your consumer right now. Brands had, you know, starting with the gap and mixing just in the seventies had sort of started opening stores themselves. And, you know, the department stores were sort of already on the decline at that point. Um, but, the fact that you were able to sell directly to a consumer, you had you had that relationship, right? There was no there was no middleman. You knew exactly who you were able to uh, who you were selling to, who you were able to target and retarget, and so all that you know was incredibly incredibly promising, right? And in 2007, 2008, that time period, there were fewer companies doing it, um, and uh, you know, and and I would have said back then that the prospect of you know, there being big brands created during this time period and, and superseding legacy brands was, was pretty great. Um, but as you sort of mentioned, and, and I think what the world has, has sort of realized now is that there are a lot of challenges to 
to DTC uh, to direct the consumer. Um, and, and I would start, and, and so I guess I would say, you know, simply like, you know, no, I don't, I think they're in general, not good businesses or really challenging businesses. You can still create a lot of value for sure. And there are still success stories and there still will be success stories. Um, but it is um, structurally the, the um, it, it is very difficult and very challenging and, and you're sort of swimming upstream, so to speak. And the biggest challenges, um, you know, I would say is one, <laughs> with respect to uh, customer acquisition, like all the value went to the consumer aggregator companies, <laughs> right? Like Meta is worth a trillion dollars or almost a trillion dollars for a reason, right? Google's worth, I don't know, almost two trillion, one seven or something. Amazon, one five, even TikTok, you know, only $300 billion. Like that is where all the value went. Right, like the people who are able to capture and or create demand, and that was something that just wasn't the case, you know, 15 years ago when we started. Uh, we were Bonobos was one of the first companies to advertise on Facebook. Um, we had a relationship because you know we went to, to grad school at Stanford, where um, you know where, where Facebook was uh, uh, was being built at the time. So we had you know some of our classmates went and worked at Facebook were early employees, and when they started to monetize. We said, hey, we'd like to advertise and, and you know, we're able to sort of cut the line. Um, and at first we were like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, and you know, very quickly, even then, any sort of arbitrage opportunity got like whittled away. <laughs> and uh, you know, even in the early, early days, Facebook was very good at capturing the value that they created um, with, respect to, with, respect to with respect to advertising. Um, and so that's sort of one problem. You know, other problems, there's no barrier to entry. Right. You know, again, as sort of Mickey Jexler famously said, anyone with a, a sewing machine can be a clothing brand. Right. You know, you don't need to have capital to open stores or, or even, um, you know, really to, to um, you know, to make stuff uh, that can sort of be outsourced as well. Um, you know, inventory is, is expensive and holding inventory and lots of companies have been thoughtful about, uh, you know, how to finance that and how to uh, structure inventory. Um, you know, Zara has been like the best at it by far. Uh, and that's why, you know, they are one of the real valuable uh, apparel companies. Um, and then just day-to-day -day management of marketing initiatives is really expensive. Um, it, you know, it's not easy to manage your customer lists and to, um, you know, deal with the day-to-day -day sales. And like, there's just, the, the, there's a lot of expense to this. And then lastly, the, the real challenge, I think, uh, which was not known at the time, was there there really are no economies of scale or few typical business, you know, as you get bigger, marginal costs go down and, or you have fixed costs that you can amortize over a longer base for, you know, D to C brands, which were small, you know, you have a, we had a few teams, you know, we were packing ourselves and putting stuff in boxes, um, answering the phone. And then all of a sudden, like, okay, we got too big. We needed a, we needed like a warehouse. <laughs> right. And, and that was a cost. And, you know, Amazon has spent, God knows tens of billions of dollars over the years and spending, you know, tens of billions of dollars every year to build out that infrastructure. Right. And, and if you're a brand like, you know, now there's the, you know, everything is as a service and you can, you know, pay a, a, a marginal fee. Um, but back then to, as you grew, you had to invest more money. So it, it ended up being a, a pretty poor venture investment because, um, you know, good venture investments are ones where, um, you know, they, they, they don't require capital to grow. And, and D2C companies continue to require, you know, massive amounts of capital to grow. That's a, 
a number of great points. Um, you know, I think, I think also kind of like the promise of D to C and that, Hey, we're also going to save like, you know, consumers, custom, um, uh, customers, you know, money, um, just because we, we, we're then taking out, you know, um, the middleman with like the retailer. And like, of course we can be maybe more, um, more dialed in on the inventory side since we're not spreading out inventory in like a wholesale model to like several stores. Right. It's like, we can kind of have more like centralized inventory, uh, uh, shipped directly to you. So, um, so it'll be like less kind of complicated, uh, complex from that, um, from, from that standpoint. And, um, but, um, but that of course hasn't really been proven out because of course, like all that kind of money that, that it would be like saving the, the customer, it went directly to marketing, directly to Facebook, directly to, you know, uh, Google and what have you. And those of course became like the behemoths, um, um, on the, on the back of that as well. So, um, totally understand. I mean, I, I I'm also kind of curious too, like, you know, I had um, I had Andy on my other podcast a couple of years ago, and I thought something that he said that was really interesting was his, you know, um, how I think he said that if you like, he's he's kind of ad- advising brands or or talking to brands about how really think about wholesale, really think about like 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 um, direct to consumer is great, but also think about wholesale channel. In your seat, you know, as someone on the CFO side, and you understand what the margin profile is for D to C, and understand what the margin profile is for you know wholesale. It's considerably lower. How do you how how do you think like like looking back? I know that you know Bonobos. That was um um that was um that was uh, Bonobos is known as, um, from the D to C side. But how do you think about you know wholesale for for retail brands? But in general. Um selling more product and getting more product in the hands of your customer. Um, so long as it's done in a way that protects the brand's integrity and delivers a good customer experience is a good thing. Right. And yeah, wholesale is, and we, you know, but no, as we did wholesale, we sold to Nordstrom. Um, and you know, on the like truly marginal basis, we made less money on it, but the actual, uh, you know, amount of work that had to be done um, for us was lower, uh, you know, in terms of getting, you know, bigger volumes. We were also able to just make bigger buys, right? So instead of buying, you know, 300 units of of an item, we could buy 800. Uh, And that, you know, reduces your actual cost when you're negotiating with your vendors because, um, you know, there is some economies of scale for them in terms of being able to like, you know, make changes and like once you're once you're doing a cut you're doing a cut um so it, it it was useful and it was valuable to us the problem is it doesn't always work and if it doesn't work then it can be um, really time consuming uh you can have like you know inventory putback issues where it creates cash uh cash crunches depending upon the deal you have um which just gets back to my original point is like if you have a good partner if there's a good wholesaler where your customer is in there shopping and if the presentation of your product is, uh, you know, reasonable in a way that, again, provides a good customer experience, like I'm all, I'm all do it is sort of my advice. You know, it was true then, but it's certainly true now. Customers will be able to find you, right? If they're like, I walked into a store and, you know, found a brand, that's an amazing brand. Where else can I buy it? What else do they sell? Like, that's a no brainer, right? Um, and you can be more thoughtful if there are real... Um, you know, if there's a, 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 a big overlap between where your customer shops, you know, you can provide only certain SKUs, um, you know, or only certain styles, styles to the, the, the wholesaler in a way that, you know, may protect your most profitable products. 
Um, so you can be smart about it, but you know, I, I am very much in favor of it. But the key is, you know, if you do it, you have to do it well, right? Because like, you know, like anything, you know, you, you want to uh, exceed expectations, right? So making sure you have reasonable buys, reasonable uh, uh, projections, um, you know, un you understand what is important to your retail partner, which is usually, you know, margin and turns, right? So if you can improve the margin and turns of your buyer, they're going to like you. So like, make sure that you're set up with respect to what you offer and, and um, you know, the size of your buy and or marketing support and or other support you may provide to make the retailer successful, right? A lot of, a lot of mistakes get made because, you know, the, the, D to C company thinks only about D to C. It's like, oh, wholesale. Okay, we'll just get it out the door, right? When they don't view it as a partnership and they don't think about, you know, making the, um, you know, the merchant at the retailer successful. Yeah, and also, you know, making sure that that they pay, they kind of um, uh, pay attention to their own metrics and also like their own category set and and making sure that like their turns are, let's say, you know, um, top fifty percentile or or what have you, to make sure that that retailer actually wants you back. Right. Um, and so, um, and so concentrating and also, you know, I mean, not picking, but, um, but targeting maybe like, like the right, t the, the right re uh, retailer too, that also maybe matches your brand in terms of, is it, you know, premium? Is it, is it, is, is it more so mass? Um, what, what is the kind of the right one that you want your brand to represent? And I think that like, um, what I appreciate that you said is also like building your brand through, um, uh, through wholesale and retail. And I think that that is, you know, sometimes a little bit counterintuitive because I think when you think about building your brand, oh, D to C, that's, that's, you know, that's like the ultimate brand because you own like that entire customer experience. Right. Uh, but you know, at the same time, um, wholesale, that is where, you know, many, many, many more shoppers will, will, will shop in the actually like a percent of discovery will be probably, um, then unless you really load up on the marketing dollars for your D to C side. But, um, but you know, I do think I, I do think that that wholesale is an incredible way to build your brand. That sometimes it is like a, a bit counterintuitive. It also can be really profitable. Like it doesn't need to, you know, you can make money on wholesale, right? It's like um, it, it's a different margin structure. But you know, it obviously costs a lot less to pick, pack, and ship because you're sending you know big bundles via truck than versus you know one item via plane typically. Um, and, you know, there are economies of scale to selling large amounts of the same item to one, uh, to one retailer. On the, I know, obviously, when we started this conversation, you talked about how, you know, the first job is obviously protect the cash, um, always have cash, don't run out of cash. Um, when, when you are a, you know, growth venture back, growth venture back company, high growth um, a company, when does it make sense to actually use um, when to use debt, for example, on the inventory side, or 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 to use cash in order to to actually fund um, and actually buy the inventory? Yeah. So I so we raised a lot of debt. Uh, we uh, you know at Bonobos, um, and I, I have sort of a different point of view on this than others. I think traditionally people are like, oh, fund debt with inventory, right? You know, okay, fine. Um, and that sort of makes sense if you're a like break-even slash profitable business that has fluctuating inventory levels because of seasonality or whatnot, or, or just not even seasonality because it is more um, dollar efficient to buy in bulk, right? 
Um, so if you're you know making four buys a year, your seasonal business, um, you may not even you know, be seasonal, but you're gonna buy four times. So your inventory is gonna go up and then more down. Then it obviously makes sense, obviously. Then it makes sense, I think, to have use debt, right? And you have a revolver that gets drawn and then gets paid down through the time period, right? That's sort of traditional use of debt by, by retailers to fund inventory. If you're a growth company, like we were, you're a venture by company, um, you're not making money, right? And so, you know, money is going to buying inventory. It's also going to, you know, paying salaries. It's also going to, you know, Google and Facebook and marketing. And like those are sort of the three main sources. Where it comes from is sort of irrelevant, right? And if you're raising venture debt and you're going to be a growth company, really all you're trying to do is arbitrage your share price today versus your share price in the future, right? Um, you know, maybe you can have some more capital today, but venture debt, like the way it's designed is not permanent, right? You know, the, the duration on these things is like, you know, a couple of years tops, right? Um, and, you know, it usually starts amortizing within a year or so. Um, and so it's not permanent capital. And, you know, maybe you're at that inflection point of a company's life cycle where, you know, you are almost cash flow generative and, you know, two more years will tip you from burning cash to generating cash. And then you can, you know, leverage those cash flows to, you know, to not just service your debt, but to, um, you know, pay down your debt. You know, that's like one option. But typically, you know, you're raising around now and you're thinking about, okay, how do I get to the next round, right? And you may have debt to increase the, the resources available, knowing that you have to replace that debt. And typically you're gonna replace it with equity, I mean, or potentially more debt, but you know, at some point you're gonna have to replace it with equity because the debt is not permanent. So really, if you're raising venture debt, all you're thinking about is, okay, dollars I need to get today. How many shares would that be if I had to sell equity versus dollars that are going to be needed to pay back that debt in time, right? Because you know the debt amortizes or the debt uh, has interests. Um, and then what's the share about what's the share value in the future? And if that is a um, you know, there's often an arbitrage because, hey, we think we're going to be twice worth twice as much in 18 months, right? Because, you know, we're going to double the business or triple the business. We'll be twice as much. So, um, you know, we'll raise debt knowing that, you know, we'll raise $5 million. We'll have to pay back, you know, six and a half million, but our share price will be twice as, you know, twice as high. Uh, and so we'll be paying it back with fewer shares. That's sort of the arbitrage opportunity. The challenge for retail, and if you're a venture back company, is at some point you're going to have multiple compression, <laughs> right? Because at some point you're going to be valued off of EBITDA uh, and off of earnings power because uh, you're a retailer. And um, that transition is, is really, really painful and could, could sometimes take, uh, take years, um, you know, to, uh, 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 to, to, to satisfy or to navigate. From the fundraising perspective, and I guess how you thought of it, um, uh, cause it seemed like, a lot of like the like DC companies back then. Um, I mean, and 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 now too from investors, but a lot of it's kind of uh, focused on like top line, um, kind of like uh, top line revenue, um, not as you know um, EBITDA centric. Were you all focused on on EBITDA during like your your time at Epinobos, or was the company still like so young that it wasn't yet wasn't yet really like a thought? And you were obviously raising at at such a clip. We weren't. So we were thinking about um, contribution profit. Um, and so, uh, you know, we were very, very focused on, um, and you have to be in a retail, I mean, retail environment, if you don't, you're dead, right? Cause you're, 
um, you know, we were focused on our initial markup, um, which was, you know, effectively if we sold things at full price, what our, um, you know, what our, our profit would be just on the sale. And then on all the different uh, additional costs that would go along with the sale, um, from merchant acquiring fees to pick, pack, and ship to um, postage to customer service, you know, et cetera, et cetera, to get to a contribution profit. And so we were very, very focused, not just on revenue growth, revenue is important, but also on the, the, corresponding, uh, the corresponding margin and profit associated with those revenue dollars. The challenge, we, were, we weren't thinking about EBITDA completely because there was some fixed cost that we had to, to, to get over to get to you know, EBITDA or, 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 or you know, break-even profitability, right? And so we had our revenue, the variable or quasi-variable costs associated that we get to our contribution profit and thinking about when that would overcome our fixed costs, right? Our fixed costs being, um, you know, obviously the, the people that went into uh, making the clothes um, and then, the, you know, the people who, who sort of ran our, um, you know, marketing, uh, uh, marketing department as well, as well as, you know, th those marketing dollars. Yeah, I mean, also, also, I think you know, too, like the website. I've, 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 I've heard Andy talk about how at one point it had to be, had to be split between San Francisco and kind of in in, in New York and everything like that because you know this was this is kind of like before the day where we didn't really know what the winner was. You know, Shopify, big commerce, and like that. So companies were kind of doing them themselves, and but uh, Bonobos was one of those brands that was doing themselves. So of course, you're paying also like engineers. You know, engineers aren't cheap, um, and so you know you have these also like incredible, as you say. I, I mean, obviously, like fixed costs that you're that, that you're doing like these really big salaries that you you actually do all you actually also have on the payroll which of course looks very very different from like starting like a, a ddc brand today yeah we didn't talk about technology um and, and i mean that we destroyed a lot of value uh and burned a lot of cash because of that very fact that you just said um you know we took money from venture capitalists early on um and made meaningful technology investments mostly because you know andy to his credit was like really prescient and his like Thoughts, right? He, you know, started building this in 2007. And back then the tools were very, very rudimentary. And basically he was like, this is going to be, this is crazy. Someone is going to make these tools really easy. He was like, something like, he sort of foresaw Shopify, I guess. And, and Shopify was founded at the time, but it was a tiny company. Um, and so, you know, we made investments thinking, hey, maybe we could be Shopify. And, um, you know, we had the main brand and we had this technology that powered the brand. And, uh, you know, for a while, our intention was, okay, well, can we actually have Bonobos be the first customer of this technology and then sell the technology to other people? Um, you know, like Amazon famously has done this incredibly well, right? Like that's how AWS started. That's how marketplaces started. Um, we were not at the scale of Amazon. <laughs> um, and you have to be at massive, massive scale, uh, you know, to make that work. Um, to have your first best customer. And so, you know, for us, it just, it, it was, you know, having a, a <laughs> building and growing. I didn't, I didn't realize that. So, 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 so Bonobos was, was also working on trying to do like similar to like, like AWS or like, you know, Shopify of like, if obviously we being spun like that company that kind of out. Platform. So that company spun out. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Shoot. Um, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. That's so, that's we a, had I, at one point. I thought it was 20 wow, engineers. Just crazy. It was wild and it created massive, massive cultural problems because we had like the clothing team in New York and the tech team in San Francisco. And, you know, they all spoke different languages, right? Um, and, you know, it was so hard 
it's so hard enough building a clothing brand and like a DTC brand. Like that is capitally intensive. That is challenging. That involves, you know, so many talented individuals, so much hard work and so much luck that to saddle that with like building a technology company, um, you know, was, uh, almost killed the company. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a very, very challenging time. It also, ironically, the company wasn't even, because the technology company was focused on building their own technology, they weren't even servicing Bonobos. Bonobos wasn't even a good first customer. And so the, but it was like, hey, there'd be one thing if it's like, hey, you know, we have this expensive technology team, but oh man, we have the best tech. Our technology was terrible. And so it was like, it created a, a horrible, horrible dynamic. Um, but yeah, I mean, today you can do, you know, everything as a service and, and do things much more cheaply. Yeah, no, totally. I'm like, I'm like the, the, the fixed cost perspective. Wow, that's 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 wild. I didn't I didn't realize that actually spun out into like its own like like uh, a technology company. I thought it was, I I thought the purpose was hey like shop. We don't really know what like the winner is here yet on the on the, on the on the tech stack side. So like we're gonna just build it ourselves um, and use it for us. Listen, I didn't this, realize that this is why, yeah. and I tell founders all the time, like picking the right capital partner who you take money from is really really important. Right, we we took money from venture capitalists, and a few of them had like in the same fund we were in, we're like Facebook, and like you know, so they're sitting on you know like career making funds, and they're like, yeah, sure, go for it, you know, like like you know to 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 deliver a three x or a five x or something if you're a clothing company, that's like a home run, right? And for them, I was like, that's a rounding error. So like you know like. Swing the fences was sort of the the um, the approach, which wasn't the right thing for the business, right? Um, you know, just we were a clothing company. That's just where the 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 assets and and value of the company was was derived and where the value is being created. Um, and so, you know, like <laughs> that, that really almost killed us. I want to talk a little bit as well about about Thrive Market too. Um, when you're CFO there, um, obviously. Um, being like talk to me a little bit about the difference between you know being a, a CFO at a brand. Um, I know we talked about how you know obviously like managing inventory. I think we we talked quite extensively on 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 that side, and as well as you know um, how you thought about like different sales uh, sales periods and what have you. But how how also um, how also uh, what are you paying attention to as a CFO as Thrive and kind of what what you're focused on. Cause of course like retailing, like, like, like low margin business, but, but high volume in terms of, um, the, the amount of products that you're, that, that you're selling. How did you think about it? Um, um, from Thrive Market and how was that different to Bonobos? Yeah. I, I, it's, I mean, it's a great question. And Thrive was very, very different. Um, and, and you know, listen, retail at the end of the day is sort of, you know, simple business, you know, uh, uh you know, like buy for, 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 uh, a nickel sell for a dime, right? It's like, you know, that, that that's sort of the business. Um, but, you know, the manner by which that gets implemented and what it means from a strategic perspective and what it means from a, um, like how you manage the business, what metrics you follow, uh, where your resources and capital are deployed are, are vastly different. So at Thrive, you know, to give you an example, at Bonobos, our, um, you know, average order value was a couple hundred dollars, but our average unit price uh, was around 70 bucks. So, you know, we would sell a product and the average value of that was $70. And the initial markup in terms of, you know, the the cost that it took to create that product was around, you know, usually around like 30%, 
call it 25%. So 25 was the COGS, 75% margin on that $70 item. At Thrive, our typical average unit cost was $6. And the margin was 30%, 70% cost, 30% margin. Um, and so the, <laughs> what you need to do to make a profitable order on one versus the other is very different, right? So you know, at Bonobos, we wanted to maintain integrity, not discount, um, of our products and um, sell them as close to full price as we could. And we really only needed to sell two, you know, at a time in a box. And customers, you know, our, our typical customer purchased, you know, two times a year, right? So it was making sure, you know, on those two purchase occasions, weather changes, guy realizes he needs new clothes, we were able to find him and we were selling him something that was sort of at full price. Um, at Thrive, customers bought every month, right? You're, you know, you're buying like literally groceries that you consume. And for us, making sure customers bought 10 items at a time was the difference between a profitable order and an unprofitable order, right? Because we're only going to, you can only put so many items in a box, right? And each item only make, you know, you only, you only make a few dollars on each item and it costs you money for the box, for the postage, for the person putting it in the box. So for us, but the person's going to buy over and over and over again, right? And so, you know, yes, we needed a box to be of a certain size, right? For a person to be um, making a profitable order. But the key for us was how do we get people to shop enough around the, catalog, the, the, the catalog or the store, or the inventory uh, areas, so that they can create boxes, right? Because we put in um, constraints. So we said, like, you can't just order one thing, right? We're not just going to send you, you know, one, uh, you know, $6, you know, jar of, or $10 jar of almond butter, um, you know, that's going to cost us $12 to, to ship to you and $7 or $6 to buy. Like, we're, you know, we're not going to do that. Um, so how do we get someone to a, to a $50 box? Um, and that was, you know, hard, right? And for us, it was like, okay, how do we get them to explore new categories so that this person can have 20 or 25 items that they're routinely buying, knowing that, you know, every month, seven to 10 to 12 of them, we're going to go out of stock and they're going to need to replenish. And so that's on the basket size, but on the inventory side, right, for Thrive, what it meant was we had limited inventory and we had to run the distribution centers, right? Because we had a low margin business. So, you know, one, we couldn't, we couldn't take charge-offs, right? Charge-offs would kill us because, you know, our starting margin, uh, you know, was so low. And two, the pick, pack, and ship was a meaningful cost of the overall cost of the business. So even though we had to have, you know, our own warehouses that we, you know, we didn't own the buildings, but we leased them, our own employees, we had to design the picking and the packing in a way that fit our orders and reduce the overall cost, right? Because we couldn't outsource that. It was paramount to, you know, making money on a box. We had to get the consumer to buy the right amount, but then be able to put that stuff in a box in a cost-effective way, right? And so that meant, you know, we had a limited amount of SKUs, um, you know, we're only going to have one kind of everything, really. Um, and you were, you were going to trust us that we would pick the right kind. Maybe we'd have two of, cer of certain high-volume stuff. Um, and that we would be thoughtful about where the stuff was in the warehouse so that we minimize the cost to put 12 items in a box because that was our typical order. At Bonobos, we outsourced all that, right? Like, we, like, you know, could we have done it a little bit cheaper? Maybe. But, you know, if you're selling, if you're, you know, selling two $70 items at a 75% markup 
and making you know $120 of profit in the box, you can overpay a little bit to have someone pick, pack, and ship it. And you don't have to optimize, right? You know, we can share a warehouse with someone else and they can design the means by which, you know, products get, um, you know, products get pulled and put into a box. And, you know, we can pay a little more for that. We, we just didn't care. It didn't, it didn't matter. What would you value more? $100 of inventory. Let's say it's inventory that you can sell that is like, like a hot product, um, like let's say Bonobo's uh, pants or $100 cash. I mean, if it's $100 of product that you can sell, you obviously want the product, right? Because that $100 of product, assuming you can sell it at a profitable contribution margin, is going to turn into, you know, $400 of, of, of sales, less some costs, and, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll keep more than $100. But the caveats, that you, the caveats you gave are massively important. Exactly, that it's a product that actually can sell. Absolutely. Because remember, um, the other accounting challenge, and we didn't really talk about this, is things sit on your books at the price you paid for it. Right. And you're not like, you know, if we were to mark our inventory to market every day, it would be sort of hilarious. Right. Because you'd have, you know, we bought these purple shirts. Oh, my God. We picked the right color purples. These sweaters, you know, Henleys are in or whatever. Great material. The value would go up meaningfully. Right. Because we know we're going to sell them and we know we're going to sell them at full price. And we're going to make, you know, we spent $100 to buy this shirt. We're going to make $400 on each shirt. Um, whereas... You know, if it's December, what's the date? The sixth, and then all of a sudden, you know, the shirts are a hundred dollars. In January sixth, they're probably worth twenty dollars, right? There's no way we can get a frack. We can get anywhere near that price for them. But on the balance sheet, it looks exactly the same. Right. That's a great. That's a really, really great point. That, that, that's a really great point because obviously, it's just like on the balance sheet, it's just like the total cost of like cogs or or or, or whatever you paid for it. That 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 obviously doesn't fluctuate. Um, Brian, thanks so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. Mike, it was great. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, anytime, anytime you want to talk, I'm, uh, I'm happy to do it. And there you have it. It was a pleasure time with Brian. Brian, thanks again so much for coming on this show. This episode of the show is brought to you by Manufactured. Once again, Manufactured is an online platform that helps brands manufacture, finance, and distribute inventory across 20 industries in 25 countries. So if you're a brand, you're looking for PO financing or inventory financing, or if you're looking to explore our manufacturing network, Check out manufactured.com. I'd love to see if we can help you. Thanks for listening.